Thank you all. It's, uh, it's a joy to see our children lead us in worship. Um, it's Jesus who said from the lips of babes, I have ordained praise. So praise the Lord and thank you to all of you. We're going to read uh, from the book of Revelation, uh, the 21st and 22nd chapter, the first few verses of each in your pew Bible. If you want to follow along there, it's page 1937. This is uh, the unveiling, uh, the apocalypse, uh, the unrolling back of, of the, the veneer that stood between us and, and the reality uh, as God sees it. This is a vision in which John is taken up to heaven and he is shown what is happening during this age between Christ's coming and his return, and then showing us a vision of what lies beyond, where we're going, where Christ is taking the church, where Christ is taking the world. It's where we're going. And we're now closing in this week and next week on the final chapters of this vision. This is Revelation 21. I'll read verses 1 to 7 and then 22 verses 1 through 5. Let us read the unveiling. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost. From the spring of the water of life, he who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city And his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's 
vision given through the Apostle John. What does it take to be a healing community? We see in this passage a profound need and a profound longing for healing. I was reading just this week a story from two weeks ago. It was November 14th of this year that eight-year-old Jordan Jackson was waiting for his mom to pick him up after school. His four-year-old sister, Janiha, was at his side. They were on the playground of Spanish Lake Primary School in Geismer, Louisiana. And when an elementary school-aged white boy began throwing mulch at four-year-old Janiah, Jordan intervened. Another white kid told Jordan to go back to the cotton farm. And when Jordan told him that that was a racist thing to say, a 13-year-old boy pushed 8-year-old Jordan to the ground, repeatedly body-slamming and kicking him. Jordan was hospitalized. He suffered a fractured arm and a concussion for defending his younger sister on a school playground. The school principal notified the Jacksons that the school is not liable because the incident happened after school hours. It's a world in need of healing, a world that is not right, a world filled with injustice, with hate, with cruelty, with sickness, with disease, natural evil, and then that which comes from our own hearts, even the hearts of children who grow up into adults. The Bible here talks about a world that is under a curse, going back to those first things of the biblical narrative that that describe a humanity that was created like God in God's image, in goodness and justice and rightness, and yet a humanity that's relationship with God became estranged, what we call the fall, so that the world that we see is no longer as it was meant to be. Humanity and indeed the physical cosmos itself being damaged, always having this sense that the world ought to be a certain way, but it is not. It needs healing. It's described in this passage as being under a curse because it's broken. It's life in the one who made it. Describes it with such varied imagery. The passage here speaks of the crippling reality of death. It speaks of a world filled with sounds of mourning, of crying, of pain, of tears. It speaks of an old order of things in chapter 21, verse 4. It speaks of chaos and insecurity, the insecurity that in the ancient world was described by the nighttime when you never knew who would break in, who would attack, who would be coming after you or your family. The chaos that's described uh, as, as the sea, which in the ancient world symbolized, represented the chaos that could come and swallow you alive and take from you all that you have. Such imagery here of a world needing to be transcended, transformed. The earliest audience here were people who understood very well injustice, 
pain, suffering, and death. These early Christians were facing their first truly empire-wide persecution, not the localized persecution of, of the 60s of the common era brought about by Nero, but the much larger and more brutal persecution that came in the 90s AD, the persecution in which Christians were sewn into animal skins and thrown to wild animals in the arena, in which Christians were, were beheaded or, or they were crucified, if not citizens, for uh, refusing to venerate the emperor. Uh, families seeing their loved ones hauled off and put in prison and very often put to death. They understood injustice. They understood the suffering of humanity. They understood the crying, the weeping. They had tears. Do you have tears? When you look at the world in which we Live. This is a world that longs for healing. It longs for something else. It was one of the four great masters of haiku, Kobayashi Isa, who in the 18th century as a Japanese poet and Buddhist monk experienced a life of repeated tragedies. His life was one loss after another. When he was young, his mother died. And then when she was young, his daughter passed away as well. At one point, he asked his superiors to explain these things, to answer his grief, and, and their response was to question why he would grieve. They were Orthodox Buddhists. This is Zen Buddhism. Why would you grieve, they asked, when life itself is but an illusion? Why would you grieve that which is not truly there, that which is truly a part of the mist, part of the nothingness? The world, they said, is a world of dew. It appears in the morning and then disappears back into the ether. And there is nothing truly to grieve when life itself is illusory. It is the dew. Kobayashi Isa wrote a poem, a haiku. The world of dew is the world of dew. And yet... And yet, it could not satisfy. No religion could speak and explain away the reality of suffering that every one of us is born with an innate sense that things ought to be a certain way, that suffering shouldn't be there, that children shouldn't die, that moms shouldn't die young, leaving their children alone to grieve them with no one to answer their questions. It's a world of suffering of death, of sorrow, of mourning, created yet fallen, and awaiting one who can speak and say, I am the end yet. One who could come and set in motion the power of healing. It's the longing of our season of Advent, the longing of humanity for one who can make it right, for one who can heal the world and all of its suffering. What does it mean when Jesus gets a hold of us and he creates the church as a healing community, a place that that lives in light of that healing which is to come, where that healing has already begun? Jesus says, to you who are thirsty, I will give water without cost, that spiritual water that quenches the soul and its longing and its emptiness and this nagging sense of a world that has lost the meaning it ought to have had. 
healing community that has a river of life running through it that flows from the Father and from the shared throne with His Son, Jesus. A community that brings healing from shame. That shame that says that God could not love you, that you could not be acceptable, that you need to hide because you're defective and it's not just what you did, it's what you are. That you're disgusting, that you're repulsive. And that we see here as the church clothed in its shame with a dress that is radiant, a wedding dress that is beautiful, covering over our shame, a a community that experiences healing from the destructive power of, of shame. And it's not just for us. It says here that that this is for those who who aren't yet a part of the church, who don't yet know the grace of Christ. It says the leaves are for the healing of the nations in 22.2, that this is something that's not just for, for those who follow Jesus to huddle around. This is all about us. This is about our healing. He says, no, this is an institution I have created, a family to represent me for the sake of everyone else, not just for your own benefit. It's the promise that was given to Abraham thousands of years earlier that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him, not just the Jews, but Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations. The church is an organization that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members to be a healing community in the midst of a world of sorrow and suffering and injustice and death that all the peoples of the earth would see Jesus and taste the healing leaves of his gospel. What's it look like to be a healing community? It looks like a place where everyone is loved and accepted, a place of security where everybody knows that they're in the presence of family, the presence of those who are going to take care of them and going to protect them, who will have a family loyalty because these early Christians, it's all they had. The world was against them. And they had the family of God, a healing community, a community that stands for justice for the weak, for the poor, for the alien, for the stranger, for the widow, for the orphan. The justice of God wrapped up in the healing, not just of physical bodies, but healings, a healing of society, a healing of culture, a healing of relationships, starting in microcosm within this healing community that is the church, a healing community that lives in light of the greater healing that is to come. A community of emotional safety where shame is not used to manipulate but is covered with grace. Do you see the wounds? Do you see it in St. Louis? You look around. I mean, you're in a major city, one of the 20 largest metropolitan areas in the United States. Uh, And these leaves, he says, are for the healing of St. Louis, socially and spiritually and culturally and, and physically. Jesus is saying, this is where we're going. And it begins in small measure in my church, a healing community that doesn't stop at the walls of the church. Do you see the wounds? Do you see the tears, the racial injustice? Jesus says, I have placed my church in St. Louis in order to bring healing, to begin inside the church, to begin among us, and move beyond the church as it's where we're going. It's where Christ is taking us to see prisoners returning as citizens back to St. Louis, knowing the recidivism rate, knowing that most of them will end up back in jail, 
unless somebody steps in to provide them an alternative community, a community of grace that models for them a different way to live, that covers their back, that gets them out of trouble, that supports them and works with them. Jesus is saying, I've placed you in St. Louis as a healing community. You look at the refugees that are flooding into this city from around the world. You look at children who are unloved and unwanted. You look at three million people in St. Louis who desperately need an encounter with the grace of God. And Christ is saying, I place you here. You are my church to live in light of the reality of the healing that is to come. It starts with you. It's for the healing of the nations. A healing community, but a healing community that is looking forward to the much greater healing that is to come. It's what we read about here in this passage when he talks about a renewed earth. A new heavens and a new earth. And the Greek is, uh, you know, it's, there are a couple different terms that can be used in Greek for new. And uh, this is the one that is more of a qualitative newness as opposed to a quantitative newness, not saying I'm going to destroy and incinerate the earth and the universe and the heavens and then replace it with a completely different one. Uh, The language is more that you would use in a burger joint when they have a really terrible burger that's like all of four ounces and it's filled with gristle and it's dry as dust on a bun that has no flavor that could be used, you know, as a... I don't know, you could probably use it like as a sponge to clean your car or something, but you wouldn't really want to eat it. And then you go back a couple months later, and it says it's under new ownership, and you go in, and they same burger, same price. It says it's new and improved. You're like, oh, I've heard this before. You order it because you're a sucker. You do it again. And it comes back, and it's this like 10-ounce juicy thing of like, you know, amazing cuts of prime rib and sirloin and chuck all mixed there together. They grind it in-house. It's perfectly medium, slightly medium well. Juicy stuff flooding all down you on a big buttery brioche bun that would put me in the hospital. And it's fantastic. And you realize that the new and improved, the new there is not a replacement new, but it is they have taken the hamburger to a whole different level. And that's what Jesus is talking about, a renewed earth. When Jesus said that the meek would inherit the earth. He wasn't promising them a burnt cinder. Um, I mean, if they're really meek, they'd be content with a burnt cinder, but that's not the point. He was promising them the earth, a renewed earth, the land, the great promise of the Old Testament. When Jesus told us to pray, he said, pray that his will would be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. It's a renewed earth that's coming. It's a greater healing that's coming, a reversal of the curse. Jesus says, no longer will there be any curse. And then in verse 4, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order will have passed away. And he describes a picture of universal flourishing where there are trees of life on both sides of this river as far as you can see and they have 12 crops because they are continually bearing fruit. The world itself will be bearing fruit. It's imagery of a world that is again alive with God and humanity and creation and nature all webbed together in justice and unity and hope and love transformed by grace. If you could imagine a world with no more racism and no more hate and no more infidelity. Imagine a world with no more slander and no more bad breakups and no more seizures and no more bullying, 
No more cerebral palsy. No more chemotherapy ever again. No more orphans. Everybody is loved. No more leukemia. No more miscarriages. Not of justice and not of lives. No more abuse. No more cancer. No more injustice. No more crooked courts, speed traps, or payday loan centers. No more deportations. No more unwanted children. No more bad divorces. No more slum lords. Where everything is right, you know you long for it. Why do you long for it? But it's an echo of Eden. It's a race memory of what humanity was meant to be and has been lost. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming back and I am going to make it all come alive again. It's hard to believe. But in our hearts, we long for it so powerfully. Jesus says, this is a world I love. And I am going to heal the earth. No one is going to destroy my earth and have the last word. I and my flesh will bring about the death of death itself, and eternal life will come and flourish in justice forever. A healing community living in light of that greater healing, which Jesus says is on its way. Jesus says, I am making everything new. You know, we long for it so much to, to be made new. It's every, every cheap makeover show on television, every, you know, uh, every commercial promising you some product, every time you feel it, every time you get a new set of clothes and some new shoes and a new haircut, and you go and you feel like a million dollars for about six hours, and then it's gone. Because you long to be new. It's what, what's promised here. It's, it's all those TV shows, you know, like, like there's one on HGTV called Property Brothers. Any Property Brothers fans? It's been on for a number of years, a few of you. I don't have cable, but I've read about it and looked at it online. It looks pretty cool, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, the Property Brothers, there are these two Canadian brothers that come in and they talk to a young couple, no kids yet, you know, really great looking, cool, trendy people. And they look at what they make and they find out the house that they want to have. And they describe this like house in like the edge of maybe the Central West End. And they want wood floors and big woodwork everywhere and crown molding and the stainless steel kitchen with the, you know, recycled glass countertops and, and the really cool furniture in the garden. And he's like, okay, now that's really great. Um, you would need to make twice the income that you actually make right now in order to afford that. But here is a similar neighborhood or maybe on the edge of that neighborhood, and you look at this house, and it is a disaster. It has dropped ceilings from the 1960s. The walls are all covered with that pebbly stuff that's acoustic, even though it doesn't really do anything. It really just covers cracks. And, you know, it's shag carpeting and, you know, harvest gold and avocado green in the kitchen with tile countertops from 1960. And, and the bathrooms are worse because they're all pink tile everywhere and they don't work. And it's just a disaster, broken windows. And they're like, uh, no. It's like, trust me on this. And then they send them packing for a while. And then they bring in all of this, like, free labor And they renovate the house. And then on the walkthrough, this young couple walks in. They saw this disaster of a house that they actually bought because the TV guys told them to. And they walk in, and it's everything they've ever dreamed of. That reveal 
you remember it, if you remember back 1990s trading spaces, you know, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, all of those things, it's always the reveal at the end that everybody waits for. And you've got a commercial break, you come back from the commercial break because you don't want to miss the reveal. And Jesus is saying, you've got a property, brother. Jesus is your property, brother. He's your brother. And the reveal is coming and everything is going to be new. How is it possible? It's possible because of what's there. When you see uh, the picture of heaven that is described here, you know, public opinion uh, polls, uh, there have been surveys of people describing their vision of heaven, and, you know, you always get the big, long, dark corridor with the light at the end, and you get the the clouds and the nice valley, and Grandma's there, and she's had a little Botox, and it's just beautiful, and people have harps. And the one thing, though, that is almost never mentioned in those surveys, almost nobody mentions that God is there. And yet the one thing the Bible tells us about heaven, what makes it new, is that God is there. It's what theologians historically called the beatific vision. The passage says that they shall see God. Covenantal mutual ownership. His name upon you. And you're going to see him in all of his glory and goodness and grace. And you will not be intimidated because it's described with such tenderness and intimacy. Where God himself is going. If you're a Christian, he's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. Such tenderness and intimacy with God that you have never had in this life, that you will never have in this life, one that you can only long for and hope for. He says the tears of of your eyes are numbered, and not just the church's tears or the bride's tears. He says their tears, every one of them. He knows you by name, and he is going to comfort you and feel every loss that you have lost. Feel it to the full. Weep with you and wipe the tears from your eyes because Hope is coming. It will be reborn. Life and justice and goodness. Everything will be made new because of the Lamb. In chapter 22, verse 1, and again in verse 3, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of Christ who, who bore your shame on the cross so that you might be made new. That's Jesus if you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's uh, either brilliant film or bloodbath, depending on your perspective, in that movie, there's this, it's the best scene in the movie where Jesus is carrying the cross and he is being scourged. He is being whipped. Flesh is being ripped off his body. There is blood everywhere. He is barely able to move. And then finally he collapses on the street and the cross is crushing him. And he cries out, mother. And Mary from the distance sees her little boy in a flashback crying out for mama. And she comes rushing and she comes to him and she embraces him. And Jesus looks at her and, she, and he says, mother, I'm making everything new. And then he picks up the cross and continues his saving journey. The Lamb of God has come. Friends, do you want to be healed? Do you want to have life? Do you long to be made new? Do you long to be a community 
of wholeness and of healing for the sake of St. Louis, for the sake of the world? Do you long to live in light of the hope that what you do in this life really does matter because healing is what is on its way? Friends, Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty, and I will give to you water of life. It's an unveiling of what lies ahead. It's why he died. It's why he rose. It's why he's coming again. Walter Wangerlin tells the story of the ragman. He says, I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a very strange story. It was like nothing my life, my street since my sly tongue had ever prepared before. Hush, child, he says, hush, child, and I will tell it to you now. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with cloth, filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, rags. Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old, I take your tired rags. Rags, now this is a wonder, I thought to myself. For the man stood six feet four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and her elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders were shaking. Her heart was breaking. And the ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, dead toys, and diapers. Give me your rag, he said so gently, and I'll give you another He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean that it shone. She blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief on his own face. And then he began to weep to sob as grievously as she had done. His shoulders were now shaking, and yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who can't turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops, and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows. The ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek, and now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew her lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, 
And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran, ran a darker, more substantial blood. It was his own blood. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work, he asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Don't you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, leaving the right sleeve of his jacket flat. The cuff stuck into the pocket, for the man had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, and so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had but one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk man lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened and sick. And he took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk man he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the rag man, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with his one and only arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, so old and sick. Yet he went with such terrible speed on spider's legs. He skittered through the alleys of the city this mile and the next until he came to its limits. And then he rushed beyond and I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow, a man of sorrows. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old rag man, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits, and then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back and I hid. He climbed a hill with tormented labor. He cleared a little space on that hill, and then he sighed, and he lay down, and he pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman and every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died and I sobbed myself to sleep. I didn't know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too, but then on Sunday morning I wakened to a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked and I looked and I saw the last and the first wonder of all. There was the rag man holding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead but alive. And besides that, healthy. And there was no sign of sorrow nor of age. And all the rags that he had gathered shined for their cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, 
for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took my clothes, and in that place, I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me, and he dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him, the rag man, the rag man, the Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, you are the one who came into this world to heal. Lord, to heal, to create of us a healing community that might live in light of the greater healing to come. And you, Lord Jesus, born in that manger, the desired of nations, you came to die so that we might live for the healing of the nations. We give you thanks as we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord. Minister your gospel to us and through us to St. Louis, we pray. In the name of Christ. Amen.